Hello and welcome again to the Community Broadband Bits podcast. This is a production of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. This is Lisa Gonzalez. This is our 29th episode. Christopher has a great talk with Susan Crawford. Susan recently published the book, Captive Audience, The Telecom Industry and Monopoly Power in the New Gilded Age. Many of you know Susan. She's a champion of the campaign to bring ubiquitous access to America. She's a professor at the Benjamin N. Cardozo School of Law. She's served as President Barack Obama's Special Assistant for Science, Technology, and Innovation Policy, and she's also a columnist on the Bloomberg View. Susan's published many articles in many different publications, and she's a fellow at the Roosevelt Institute. Susan's lectured all around the world, and her list of accomplishments is long and distinguished. Christopher and Susan talk a little about the history of how a few large telecommunications companies have come to possess access for Americans. They also discuss the future of telecommunications in our country and what possible scenarios may arise. Is our destiny to repeat past mistakes? Susan and Christopher talk about how we can influence our own connectivity by starting locally. Here are Susan and Christopher. Susan Crawford, thank you so much for coming on uh, Community Broadband Bits. I'm excited to talk about your new book. Hey, well, Christopher, it's awfully nice of you to have me on, and I treasure your site and all the hard work you do. Uh, The new book is called Captive Audience, and it just came out this week uh, on Tuesday, Um, and I am doing the best I can to keep it in the national eye. Right. I actually read it uh, over the Christmas break, um, and I was really excited to read it. I, I have to say that I picked it up and I was kind of like, I don't want to read a long book with a bunch of stuff I already know, but there was a lot of things in there I didn't know, and I learned a lot. So uh, I'm really glad you read it, you wrote it, and I'd like to know what was your main reason for taking the time to write this book? It seemed to me really important that Americans understand what's going on with Internet access and telecom policy really doesn't get covered by mainstream media. It is slightly arcane. There are a bunch of acronyms. And I felt that I was in a position to explain it in a really accessible way because Americans got excited about banking and they've gotten excited about climate change as enormous social policy issues. But telecommunications remains a little distant and were easily confused, frankly, by lots of bright, shiny objects and uh, slightly misleading press releases from our giant incumbent telecommunications companies. So I thought I was in a special position um, to write about what had happened in the last decade. And I was really interested in the Comcast NBCU merger. The the focus on um, Comcast and the history I thought was really good. Um, I'm a Comcast customer through uh, lack of other options. And what I usually say is the best thing about Comcast is that at least it's not Time Warner Cable. Um, but it was, uh, it was it's a terrific look at how this company succeeded um, in terms of turning itself into such a large company. The criticism that you've been facing, though, in writing this book, which which details how the cable markets came to be the way they are, today is that you somehow hate markets and you hate capitalism and you just uh, you know you want to go back to the 1800s and so I want to I want to put that question to you do you want to go back to the 1800s what's weird about that criticism is that in fact I want the opposite I want free markets to function and right now when it comes to the flow of information over wires in America we have a few gatekeepers deciding what information is going to be successful and 
what speeds are going to be and how much consumers are going to pay for all this. And that means that innovation is at the mercy of these companies, where in other countries, you can take uh, communications just for granted. On a smartphone in most Asian countries, you never have to think about waiting for a link to load or waiting to you know, go on with your business. You never have to think about the friction of a slow wired connection if you're building a new business at home. But here in America, if you're launching a startup in Brooklyn, home of all 20-somethings, you really have to struggle to find the connectivity you, mean, you need to be a world-class online startup. And so it seems to me that that's worth worrying about. That isn't a free market. It's constrained by the private desires of a few extraordinarily successful actors. Right. I think we, we often forget that um, markets uh, can be broken by government um, having poor policy, uh, which is what I think the big companies are always railing against. And it can also be broken by very large companies um, taking over and, and subverting um, the, uh, the inputs that all the others need. And I'm, I'm just curious if you want to just, if you briefly can recall, you talked a little bit about the, uh, the oil and the, um, the train, the railroads, and how they, how they took over because they had the ability to tax effectively every, the movement of everything else. <laughs> That's right. Well, both of these industries, railroad and uh, oil distribution, depend on uh, having access to an essential input that many businesses in America need and uh, building the ability to corner the market in that commodity. So in railroads, a few actors figured out how to get access to important rights of way across the country, built systems, and then consolidated their activities so that they could cooperate across state lines and differentially charge for uh, packages going from one place to the other. They could make or break markets. Farmers were totally beholden to the operations of the railroad barons and had no recourse. Um, and they were furious. Same thing happened with oil, where over time, uh, Rockefeller Standard Oil really cornered the market on the ability to um, generate oil and then cooperated with the railroad companies so that it was impossible for anybody else to have the cheap cost delivery of oil that Standard Oil had. So at one point, Standard Oil really controlled 85% plus of the market for oil in the United States. Extraordinarily successful. So uh, what's happened in wired and wireless internet access is it's quite similar. Um, it is, in a sense, even trickier on the telecommunications side because there was so much government assistance at the beginning of the stories of these companies. Cable companies were granted exclusive franchises. Uh, the wireless companies got access to Spectrum initially for free. And the, the condition of that was supposed to be that everybody would get telecommunications service that was cheap and reliable and universal. But the end part of that story hasn't worked out well for America. 
it actually makes you wonder how many times we have to learn the same lessons over and over again, I feel like. The um, I was fascinated in reading a book about the history of coal that uh, there was when they were building the Schuylkill Canal, I believe it was in Pennsylvania, the legislature passed a law saying that the owner of the canal, which was a, a private company, could have no interest in the coal mines or the other extractive industries along the route, recognizing that if it did, uh, it would take over those industries because of the advantages of, of owning the ability to move the goods. Um, it's network neutrality from 200 years ago. <laughs> and, and the Nixon administration. So in the 70s, when cable was first emerging, there was a lot of concern about the cable industry also having control over content for exactly the reasons you mentioned. That in fact, having to wrangle the difficult relationships between content and distribution, getting government into that business is really difficult. And so the Nixon White House said it'd be much simpler just to separate conduit from content and ensure that cable was only a transmitter and not also involved, vertically integrated into the programming business. I actually think that that's, it's such a brilliant solution. Um, structural separation of uh, implementing just that would obviate the need for so many other regulations yeah. that it's really, I think, a deregulatory move. It's a very smart regulation that gets rid of so many others. That's right. But because regulation as a word has such a bad name in America, uh, we have a lot of thoughtful work to do to get Americans to understand that. Right. So let's let's pose a hypothetical situation here, which is something that, that someone first posed to me. I, I wish I could credit them, but I cannot remember who it was. Uh, and it is, if tomorrow a new company sprung up and provided fiber to the home internet access to everyone across the United States, would our problems be over or would they just be starting? Well, it depends what the end of that sentence is. If if a single company provided fiber access to all Americans and was subject to government oversight, that might be fine. That's what we had in the telephone marketplace. And as much as people try to claim that um, it was a mistake to have a telephone monopoly, the benefits of a single company cross-subsidizing um, long-distance service and uh, providing reliable local service to everyone were very great, as long as the federal regulators could keep up with it and could ensure that long-distance service eventually was competitive. We, we just have to learn over and over again that these are very high initial cost industries. It might be fine to have a private company providing it all, as long as there's a cop on the beat, consumer protection, and reasonable pricing for everybody involved in the country. I'm glad to hear the, the, the nuance there because I think too many people have this idea that if only Google would expand beyond Kansas City that you know suddenly everything would be good. And although I, I expect Google to expand beyond Kansas City and I certainly think that Kansas City is better off uh, with the Google investment there, um, I think that there's it's, it's just we need so many other changes as well that it's important to keep that in mind. That's absolutely right. And I, I don't want people to be convinced that uh, I, I love the Google disruption of this marketplace. I'm so glad they're doing it. Um, but we still need a public interest role in the provision of telecommunications. We keep learning that again and again. 
So let me ask you then, um, what should someone do after reading your book and, and being really excited and throwing open their window and saying that they're mad as hell and not going to take it anymore? Well, just throwing up open your window isn't going to actually change the situation as much as I understand the initiative. Um, what we need to do is get this on the radar screen of Americans. So someone who's interested in this needs to find their kindred spirits in their local community. And they need to become avid readers of your site. And they need to understand what, their, what air cover their mare needs in order to provide competitive fiber. And it, you know, it could be that the mayor decides to build a municipal system that's actually uh, owned and controlled by the municipality. It could be that the mayor decides to condition access to rights of way by a private provider on provision of competitive fiber. But in any case, that mayor needs your support because he or she is going to be part of a, a lattice, a network of community networks across the country that are under attack by the existing um, cable and, and wireless companies. And they're going to need political air cover so that they can take the steps that are needed in order to serve your community. One of the, the things that I've seen and I've tried to avoid doing myself, although it's very hard sometimes, is to just be excessively snarky in dealing with the uh, FCC commissioner, for instance, and just being very frustrated. Um, you do, you've done a very good job, I think, of explaining how the incentives are all wrong for a commissioner or for a, uh, an elected official at the state or national level. Um, and so you just said to give mayors cover, but mm -hmm. um, maybe you can explain a little bit about why our elected leaders aren't doing this on their own already. Well, let's start with the FCC. It's, it's very difficult for them because the incumbents have so much power on Capitol Hill, they could uh, just march on the appropriations committee covering the FCC if the FCC attempted to do anything too disruptive and gut the budget for the agency. Um, so that's a big risk for the regulator because they're so single purpose in the United States um, that that one very powerful industry could really decimate the staffing of the FCC, which wouldn't be good for anybody. And also, um, so it's now moved to elected officials uh, because there is so much campaign cash and so many employees of these companies in every congressional district, uh, there's no real upside for an elected official to call hearings, you know, do anything about this slightly complicated set of questions in telecommunications. So they need help in a few ways. They need clear explanation, clear public interest the sense that they may lose their seats as elected officials if they don't take this industry on and ensure that Americans are getting the cheap, universal, open, fast connectivity that they need in order for the nation as a whole to be competitive. In the end, Christopher, this is really about national competitiveness. And if we can help people understand that and then help them vote for and persuade their elected officials, in turn, we'll get a better regulatory scheme. Thank you so much. You've, you've really, I think, captured things well in your book and uh, in your interviews. I've really enjoyed uh, listening to Diane Rehm. I look forward to, I hope I hear you on Fresh Air and on Stephen Colbert. Uh, mm -hmm. In fact, let me just pull a page out of Stephen Colbert's book and strongly encourage everyone to tweet Stephen Colbert yeah. and uh, tell him to interview you because that's what he does to everyone else. <laughs> that's really great. Well, thank you very much. I 
Christopher, I, I, I so admire and appreciate your work, and I'm delighted that we had this chance to talk. Thank you. That was Christopher interviewing Susan Crawford. We encourage you to visit your local independent bookstore and pick up a copy of Susan's latest book, Captive Audience, The Telecom Industry and Monopoly Power in the New Gilded Age. Follow Susan on Twitter. Her handle is at S. Crawford. And look for her on muninetworks.org, where we regularly bring you news of her writings and appearances. If you have any questions or comments, please send us a note. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org. Our handle on Twitter is at communitynets. This show was released on January 15, 2013. Thanks to the Mojo Monkeys for the music licensed using Creative Commons. The song is called Bodacious. Bodacious.